Turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Um, we've been studying through the book of Mark on Sunday mornings, and um, we're, I'm going I'm to kind of get us caught up to speed before we read our scripture this morning, just so we, I can provide some context, because we are skipping some ground here um, to talk about the trial of Jesus the night before he was crucified. I, I thought it was appropriate, because <clears throat> I know this is Palm Sunday, but with a, our new Tenebrae service coming up on Friday, actually um, meditating on the death of Christ, I wanted to give us something to prepare us for that event at the end of this week. Or, and and if, even if you're not coming to the Tenebrae service, even though I really think you should, if you can make it, try to make it happen, it's going to be very powerful. But if you can't, I hope you meditate on the, on the crucifixion of Jesus on Friday. I hope you set time aside, either in your heart, in your mind, that you put yourself in a space where you can really um, face the dark truth about what it took for our redemption and our salvation and really, um, really get into that. And I hope that this is, <clears throat> that this prepares you for that. So um, this is an incredible week. We've been studying the book of Mark on Sunday mornings and we're um, now focusing on the material in Mark that describes Jesus's, what I call Jesus's assault on Jerusalem. Because that's really what happened on Palm Sunday. We talked about that last year. If you want to go, if, if, you, if you want to look at, listen to um, Mark chapter 11, where it, it records the triumphal entry of Jesus, you can go on our website um, it's what we taught last year at this time. That's Mark 11, 1 through 11, and you can enjoy that. It's, it's, um, it's very important to us. But I call it an, uh, the triumphal entry, an assault on Jerusalem, an assault on the powers that be, both spiritual um, and um, politically. Um, and the, the religious leadership that was going on there in Jerusalem um, in this section, Mark chronicles one week of, I think, provocations by Jesus that will culminate in his crucifixion by the end of the week. That's what this week represents. Again, Mark and the other gospel writers, but Mark, for our purposes, chronicles one week of prodding, intentional provocations by Jesus in the city of Jerusalem so bad and so provoking and so irritating that by the end of the week, Jesus will end up crucified, okay? For this reason, um, the week leading up to Easter, traditionally this week, Holy Week, as we Christians like to call it, is the highest week on the Christian calendar. This, is, this week marks the week of weeks for us on the Christian calendar. For thousands of years, Christians have been going on kind of like a spiritual pilgrimage of the heart and of the mind during this week. And what, we, what I want to encourage all of you to do, if you haven't made any plans, the point of this week is to take time remembering, meditating on, and actually trying to participate in, relive, and even experience in some ways in your person key redemptive events of the final week of Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. I would just want to encourage you, don't let this week blow by. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a sacred time for you. Don't let this week blow by without revisiting some of these things. This is the week that we pause. So intentionally find time in your week to pause. Get away. Drive somewhere that overlooks someplace beautiful or or get your favorite drink and just sit in your car and listen to some music or listen to a teaching or read, read the, uh, Mark 11 through 15. Do those types of things um, and make time for it. And I would say sprinkle times throughout the week leading up to this. We're, we're, we do our best to try to provide you mechanisms for that. One is Good Friday, Tenebrae service coming up. Palm Sunday, those types of things, but we take it seriously because we're trying to provide ways that we can do this corporately and pilgrimage there together. We allow ourselves to participate in the drama. That's what's going to happen a little bit on Friday. We have a dramatic reading of 
tenebrae. Tenebrae is Latin for shadow, darkness. Um, we have a candle lighting ceremony where it's all timed to some of the movements of Christ during this week. Um, we pause to participate in the... Um, in some ways, as, you, as I want to draw your attention to, in some ways the entire gospel of Mark has been building towards this week. You can feel from chapter 2 on, you can start feeling this controversy, this tension um, that builds up to this week. So far we've seen Jesus' activity outside of Jerusalem. Have you noticed that? For the first, well, in the most of the book, we've seen Jesus' activity outside of Jerusalem, particularly up north in the region of Galilee, which was a region that was far more sympathetic to revolutionary ideas, critiques of leadership, both Jewish leadership and Roman leadership. And he's been amassing this following, becoming more and more popular and more and more controversial up north. So if you're in Jerusalem, you're hearing the news of this growing movement up north, and then you hear the news that Jesus and his followers, this movement leader, is finally making his way to Jerusalem. Put yourself in the, in the position of someone who lives in the city of Jerusalem, and you've just been hearing about this, this incredible movement that's been going on, kind of a scary movement that's been going on, and all the rumors that would have come along with it, all the assumptions that your mind would be filling into the vacuums of what you've been hearing. Oh, this is a revolutionary movement to overthrow Rome, you, you might think. That's scary. I like it, but I kind of don't, right? Um, all of those things that would have happened. This is the Messiah. This, this might be David's, uh, David's son that will reclaim his throne. And on and on it goes. And finally you hear, oh, Jesus and his disciples, they're going to be here for this Passover. And you're anticipating his appearing. You want to see it for yourself. You want to hear for yourself. That's kind of the, what's buzzing in the city before this happens. Uh, Josephus, the um, Roman historian, tells us that there were millions of people in Jerusalem for this particular Passover. They were able to chronicle that by counting how many lambs were slaughtered uh, per Jewish family. And we're talking about millions of people from all over the Mediterranean world crammed into Jerusalem for this and several of them buzzing about who is this Jesus. It was a busy, busy, bustling time. A lot of energy, a lot of energy going down. And in chapter 8, Jesus starts his journey south to Jerusalem for this kind of fateful showdown. Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem in this particular visit for this week, not as a visitor, not as a devout Jewish man attending one of many feasts. This visit means a lot more than that. And there are a number of different clues that indicate this. For one thing, when you read the Gospels all the way through, especially if you do it in one sitting, that's one great thing to do. And by the way, not hard to do. You'd be surprised how fast that goes. I know that sounds um, daunting to read the whole Gospel of Mark in one shot, but you actually, you can do it in about 20, 25 minutes. It's a great, it's a great read. Um, you can't help but feel puzzled by Jesus trying to conceal his identity all the time. That's one thing that you find. Um, you know, he will do a miracle or heal the sick or drive out demons. He's constantly telling people after these events, don't tell anyone about this. And that may, I mean, if for anybody that's new to the Gospels, that will make you scratch your head a little bit. I remember when I was a new Christian, that was one of the things I thought, why? Is he ashamed of it? What's the deal with that? And the reason was, as John put it in the Gospel of John, um, he put it on Jesus' lips over and over again, Jesus saying, my time has not yet come. Jewish Messiah, the long prophesied, long awaited king of the family of David, that's going to, 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 take, to take the throne of his, of his father, that will make the power brokers of both church and state very upset and he could get killed before he wants to be killed, right? Before he's ready, he's still got things to do. He's not ready to die yet. So leading up to this point, Jesus has been exerting a lot of energy trying to control the information about him. 
That's a lot of, a lot of energy is, uh, is expended by him. But now, chapter 8 on, he's full throttle. There's a complete policy change. Very, very different. He's not keeping quiet anymore. In fact, right before his arrival, you went through this with Paul in chapter 10, Paul Shaner, when he went through chapter 10 with you. Right before his arrival on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus is met by a blind beggar um, named Bartimaeus who cries out, Son of David, that's a messianic title, Son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, Bartimaeus is loudly proclaiming that he believes Jesus is the Jewish king they're all waiting for. Jesus heals him, and up to this point, his mode of operation is to say, now keep quiet, but this time he doesn't. He says nothing about keeping it concealed. In fact, this miracle, the healing of Bartimaeus, adds momentum to the crowd that's following Jesus into the city for his triumphal entry. And if you were to keep reading, which I hope you will this week, if you were to keep reading, you would see Jesus in anger cleanse the temple. You remember that story? Turning the tables, fastening a whip and driving the cattle and the money changers out. He was angry. He was angry. If you kept reading, you would hear him telling some very damning parables about the state of the nation. We read about that last week in, in chapter 12, 1 through 12, an amazing parable about tenants and owners, if you remember. You would, if you kept reading, you'd hear challenging tru, uh, truth, him challenging hurtful tradition and hurtful theology, straight up challenging their bad theology in front of everybody. You would, if you kept reading, you would see an outright uh, reveal of who he is in the middle of the temple. Threatening stuff. This whole week, he's shaking things up. You see him launch a public smear campaign against the scribes, the theologians. Straight out in front of the temple, woe to the scribes. No one likes to be called out in public, especially no leader. And you'd see him even predict the destruction. not the most popular guy here. He comes into Jerusalem and he makes a splash, so to speak. So make no mistake about it, Jesus is here to intentionally shake stuff up. A straight reading of this last week, you'd have to come away with that impression. He's taking up the office of the ultimate prophet in this, echoing the prophet Jeremiah, who hundreds of years earlier called out the the corrupt leadership in Jerusalem called out Jerusalem for their idolatry and predicted the destruction of the, of the temple of Solomon by, by Babylon. Here Jesus echoes that 400, 500 years later, saying, still going after the leaders, but not just the ultimate prophet. Mark tells us how that Jesus has a very specific way that he wants to enter the city. He doesn't just walk in. He's very particular about this. He must come riding into Jerusalem on a colt. Remember that? And not just any colt. Verse 2 of chapter 11 tells us that it must be a colt that no one has ever ridden on. It's very clear that his purpose for this visit is Jesus is not coming to Jerusalem as a tourist. He's coming as a king. This is what what scholars and theologians call the offices of Jesus. And they all culminate on this week. He comes as the king of David, the king, the Davidic king, come to reclaim the Davidic throne. He comes as the ultimate prophet, pronouncing judgment on on, uh, Jerusalem and on the leadership and prophesying its demise. And in our passage today, he comes as the ultimate judge. That's one of his offices. That's what we're going to study about today. And by the end of this week... Jesus will fulfill the ultimate priest. He's the priest who ends all priests because he will offer a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. All of the offices of Christ, all of these ancient themes that you can find spread throughout the Old Testament all come like, a, like finding nerve endings. They all come and they bundle together in the, in the final week, the final week of Jesus. 
But today we're, gonna, we're going to hone in on the, trial, the trials of Jesus, uh, the trials that he faced before the religious authorities. We have a record of only one of them this morning in uh, chapter 14. But keep in mind that we have testimonies from all four gospels for how the whole process went down. Um, and they just, they all paint a part of the full picture. So to get a full view, we need to read all of the testimonies, all four of the gospels. Um, and when you do that, you're going to learn that there were three phases of the trial that Jesus had before the religious leaders and another three phases of the trial that he had between, uh, before the Roman leaders, before Herod and, P- and Pontius Pilate. And what we're looking to run um, the Jewish Supreme Court, they are the highest governing body that Rome has allowed over Jewish affairs there in Jerusalem, and Jesus is before them. Let me, let me read it for you, and you can read it on the screen with me. It says, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders um, and the teachers of the law, they all came together, and Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. Side note, uh, whoever keeps saying that Peter is a coward has, just is not reading the Bible. Nine, um, actually ten of the twelve disciples, you know what they did? Ran. Two followed into a very dangerous place, into this courtyard. It was John and it was Peter. Peter. And he warmed himself by a fire with guards. He's not in a safe place. Whoever's saying that Peter is a coward, it's just simply not reading this. Yes, he ends up denying Christ. But here's what I think when you take all the evidence together. I think when he sees Jesus being beaten and he knows he's going to get killed, I think Peter is questioning if Jesus really is the Christ. I think he's saying, I don't know if he's the one anymore. I don't know if I want to follow him. I think that's the denial It's a denial, but I don't think he does it out of cowardice. I think he's confused. If you read, if if you're just straight reading of Peter, the guy is, I just feel like we're going to owe him a big apology in heaven. (laughs) Peter, you're a stud. Um, Anyways, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, this is verse 55, were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. That's their motive right there. I'm so sorry, I couldn't hear you. It was a lot, it was 70 people, 70, it was 70 people, and, um, it, but this also says that a lot of other people had, had gathered around them, so all the teachers of the law, all the scribes, this says, but the Sanhedrin itself was a, was a governing body of 70 people that actually had some authority to do stuff that Rome would allow. Rome would not allow them to execute anybody on their, they took that away from the Jewish people, so that's why they've got to, at the end of this week, go to Rome. Um, to get that, to manipulate that to happen. But um, they still have some authority. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that, Renee. Absolutely. So the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. That's their motive. They, they're, they're trying to find evidence to put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. So there's discrepancies. Things aren't adding up. Verse 57, then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him, not made with hands, yet even then their testimonies didn't agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy yourselves. What do you think? And they all, they all unanimously condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit on him. And they blindfolded him and struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. When I, in the 90s, was it? 
I don't remember, but I remember one of the most dramatic times of my childhood was watching the O.J. Simpson trials with my mom. And I remember I was just a kid, and I've never been so riveted by watching that, you know. And my mom was explaining how everything was happening to me and how the glove that was supposed to fit and all of, you know, all of this, all of this. And um, I just can't think of anything more dramatic than a good trial, you know, and especially a trial that someone's on for their very life. And there's no more dramatic moment in a trial, I, I don't think, that when the defendant is called up and they're going to grill the defendant. They're going to ask the defendant, him, him or herself, some questions. And I think perhaps, that's why I read that passage extremely dramatically, because I personally don't think there's ever been anything more shocking testimony given on a witness stand than Jesus in this passage. I really think, I, I really think this is huge. And you can feel the explosion in verse 66. The high priest tears his clothes. You know, it's just a dramatic trial. They can't find anything to stick at first. They're just trying to get people up there to give some testimony. The, the, it seems like the trial's lost for the, per, the, for the prosecution. It seems like they're going to have to let him go. And then all of a sudden, Jesus basically just hands it, hands it to him. This the turning of the tide. I am, and you'll see the Son of Man coming on the right hand of the clouds of heaven. And you, you just feel the air get sucked out of the room and the high priest processing what he's hearing, and you know, it just it, there's an explosion in the courtroom. You can just feel it. I think the the film Passion of the Christ does a great job with this uh, with this part. If you haven't watched it, it's a very violent movie. But um, this part uh, uh, is just so dramatic. They get it. I think they get it right. First, let's look at this trial. Uh, the prosecution is trying to make a particular charge stick. Let's, let's build this out a little bit. And that particular charge is that Jesus called for the destruction of the temple. That would have been a charge that would have got him killed right there. If Jesus had called for the destruction of the temple or encouraged others to destroy the temple, of, uh, of course, that would be sacrilege. That would be blasphemy. It'd be vandalism. It'd be terrorism, right? If Jesus was... was caught propagating an assault on the Jewish temple by his followers, that would be condemned. But Jesus never did that. If you remember, um, when we went through, I took it out of order, but we did go through Mark chapter 13. Um, and he only predicted that the temple would be destroyed, which it was eventually, but he never called for it to be destroyed, so they couldn't get him on this. They could never really pin Jesus in calling for the destruction of the temple because he never said that. So they, that couldn't be used against them. And here's the thing. By the rules of that time, by how um, the Jewish prudus, so to speak, of the Jewish temple was supposed to go down at that time, this, this testimony should have been thrown out. The, the, this, this case should have been done right there. This, but this trial, um, they're so bent on killing them. This trial is a miscarriage of justice from beginning to end, as we're going to see. Um, but the trial should have been thrown out. But they don't call it off or dismiss the case, but instead, the high priest, in his frustration, calls, puts Jesus on the stand, if you will, so to speak, and he says, just point blank, are you, it's, you know, it's a Hail Mary for the priests. It's like last ditch effort. Get him up there. Maybe he'll say it. Probably not, but maybe he will. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? The Son of the Blessed One? Um, and in order to go forward, I, you have to understand what he's asking Jesus for. In the expectation of the times, a Messiah would come and would be like a Davidic king. He would be in the line of the Davidic king. And he would rise up and help Israel throw off the yoke of Rome, the Roman oppressors. That's, I want you to know what people were thinking of when, when they were talking about the Christ, the Messiah. But this person, hear me correctly here, this person was thought to be a very human figure, not divine. Messiah had not yet been linked with divinity at this point. He was an anointed political military leader like David who was devoted to God. David was called the son of God. 
and the anointed one. David was anointed, but he was anointed for a task. And by the way, even theologically, messiahship is not something necessarily that Jesus is, more of a task or a function that he fulfills, okay? Jesus, if you want to know who Jesus is, according to the Bible, the, the, um, eternally, he is the logos. He is logos. That's John chapter 1. In the beginning, the word logos created the heavens and the earth. That's Jesus for all of eternity. In his incarnation, he is Jesus. At his baptism, when, he, when he's anointed by the Father, he takes on Messiah at that point. In other words, I'm here to fulfill a mission at this point. Okay? But he's going to tell us, not only is he Lagos, he's going to tell us. See, that, that's my point. He's going to go even further here. He, yeah. Not at this point. There was, they, so scholars, if you read N.T. Wright's work on this, he does a great job uh, in this. There were hints. Um, there were uh, more like hints that people were starting to maybe theologically put it together. But in their mind, the suffering servant, um, the Messiah, the Son of Man, these are all separate. These are not wrapped into one. Okay. So yeah, but the majority, there might have been a, a, a minority, a very small minority, but even then their thought process wasn't complete. They didn't, it wasn't, it was maybe getting there, okay? But the majority, they were thinking the Messiah was, was a military political figure come to set Jerusalem free from its oppressors. That's what's going on here. So when the high priest asked Jesus, are you the son of the blessed one? He's not necessarily asking, are you God? Okay, are you the son of God? He's just asking, are you the Messiah that we've been expecting? And Jesus gives him way more than he bargained for. Way more than he bargained for. Look what he says. First he says, yes, I am. Now that right there is already Way, was what the high priest was throwing the Hail Mary for. Right there, he's like, oh. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus is like, and by the way, are you, ready for, for, are you ready for this? He says, and I am a Messiah infinitely, infinitely bigger than, you, than you've ever bargained for. <laughs> because I am the Son of Man, too. Messiah is the function that I've come to fulfill, Sure. This is why Jesus has kind of coyly accepted this title throughout his ministry. He's accepted it, but he always jumps to the Son of Man bit, right? Because that's who he is. That's who he is. Messiah is something he's come to fulfill. Uh, let's unpack this a little bit. The Son of Man is a figure presented in Daniel chapter 7. And all of the ruling council in these 70 members of the Sanhedrin, they would have known exactly what the Son of Man meant. There was no mixed bones about this. They knew Jesus boldly told these guys that he's the son of man. The son of man in Daniel 7 comes from the throne of God to the earth. He's a man that doesn't go from the earth to, to heaven. He comes from the throne of God to earth in the clouds of heaven to do what? He's coming to judge evil and to judge the world. That's Daniel chapter 7. He comes wrapped in the clouds of divinity. What is that? The Shekinah, in the Old Testament, anytime you see a cloud, we're talking about the presence of God, the manifest presence of God. So there's, Daniel sees a man in heaven wrapped in the presence of God, a divine human coming on the clouds of heaven to judge the world. And Jesus is saying, I will come to the earth in the very glory of God, the Shekinah glory, at the end of time, and I'm going to judge the world, and I'm going to put all evil down. That's the Messiah that I am. That's the Messiah I am, he's saying. Okay? This is intense. It's an astounding statement. This is a claim to deity and way beyond what this 
high priest is asking him to confess to. And this is a direct challenge to their authority because you know what he's saying here? He's saying, this is a direct challenge to their authority, he's saying, you guys think you're judging me, I'm actually the judge of the cosmos and I'm judging you right now. Authority outweighs you. You think you're judging me. This is the great irony of the problem of humanity. You think you're judging me. You think you're the one deciding if I'm God or not, if Jesus is real or not. You think you're the ones making the decisions here. I'm actually the judge. And I will come and I will eradicate evil from from the cosmos through my judgment. In other words, he's saying, regardless of what you people decide here today, I'll be back. (laughs) That's what he's saying. I will be back. And as soon as Jesus claims divinity, as soon as he claims to be the judge of all the earth, verse 66, the response in the room is, is like an explosion goes off. It's like a, melt, a melting happens. You have people tearing their clothes, dust is flying in the air, their spit, slaps are, being, are, are happening. They all uh, unanimously judge him. There's grief, there's horror, there's outrage. And not only that, but the situation further deteriorates into into chaos because this is a trial. And these distinguished judges and officials just go bonkers. And in the middle of the trial, they just go absolutely crazy. I mean, can you imagine this? Imagine in the O.J. Simpson trial or imagine watching something like that and, and just a riot breaks out in the middle of the trial. And they're trying to get it, and they're, they're slapping the guy. And I mean, it's just, it's crazy stuff. It's crazy stuff. So, first of all, this passage shows that Jesus is claiming to be the judge of all the earth in verse 62. And I want you to see just how historic and important this is. What this, I think this statement changed the world. I want to unpack some of the implications and the enormity of what this means. When Jesus claims that he's not a religious teacher or a moral teacher, but the divine judge of all the earth, you have to understand this is where Christianity, in a sense, was born. This is where it parts ways from so many other philosophies and other religions. When Jesus claims, I'll read my notes again, when Jesus claims that he's not a religious teacher, And he's not a moral teacher, but the divine judge of all the earth. Christianity parts from any other religion on the the face of the planet at that moment. This This is where it's an entirely different thing. Um... Let me put it, look at, look at the history of, I was thinking about, if we applied this, what Jesus said, to the history of philosophy, philosophic history, you know, Plato versus Aristotle, or rationalism versus empiricism, or positivism versus existentialism. If we, if we were to look at all of those arguments, what it all basically, what they're, you know what they're arguing about? Do you know what they're contemplating? All of those philosophical arguments are trying to ask you, answer one question, the question, what is really real? What is really, really, really real about life? What's reality? Some camps say it's the universals. Other camps say it's the particulars of life. Some camps say it's the ideals. Other camps say, no, it's the real. What's real it's, it's the material, what's here right now. Not the ideals of what it could be. What's real is what's in front of us. The absolute values or principles. Other people will say it's the contextual specifics. That's what another thought. Or is it the one or is it the many? And on and on and on these arguments go and these philosophers of philosophize. On and on and on it goes. Now, if we're applying this passage to the history of philosophical debate, you have to realize that Jesus is just blowing it up. He makes all of those categories completely obsolete here at this point. Because you know what he's saying? saying, Jesus is saying, right now, right in this courtroom, he is saying, the ideal has just become real, people. That's what's just happened. The general, God, has become specific. The absolutes, The absolutes, what's out there, has become personal. 
has become particular and personal. The universal has become particular. The infinite, the infinite, the unapproachable has become someone you can literally touch and in this case, slap, spit on. Think of this philosophical statement that just rocked the world when Jesus, it's almost like, let there be light and when he says, I am and you will see, it's like, it ripples through history to who we are, to sitting here right now. We would not be sitting here if Jesus at his trial said, yeah, I'm the military leader that's come to take, to overthrow Rome. We would not be, in fact, I'm hoping it'll be the best. That's why I'm here. We would not be here for that. It's a much bigger statement. He's basically saying, therefore, the impossible has become possible. The metaphysical has become physical. This makes all the human categories obsolete and makes all the debates obsolete. But think about it now from a personal level. Think of it personally. Um, the neutral or passive position when it comes to religion or any relationship is um, it keeps our options open. You, know, you hear the, uh, you know, he doesn't like commitment. He's afraid of commitment or she's afraid of commitment. You know why? We're afraid of commitment personally and relationally. It's because it's dangerous to commit or to get overly excited if the person you're believing fails. Some of us are afraid of commitment because there's somebody significant in our life that we leaned on and they failed us. And now we're like, I don't want to, I'm not going to open my heart up to that ever again. I'm not going there anymore. I'm going to keep safe. And that's, that's how we are spiritually when it comes to God. We don't want to commit. We want to keep our options open. We want to wait and see if this works first before we completely jump into Christianity with all of our lives. So we'll say, oh, it's good for you. Good for you. I'm still, you know, that type of thing. Or even us as Christians, we'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, but there's still a lot of our own lives that we control. Why? Because we don't trust him yet, do we? We don't want to be absolutely free-fallingly committed, but the claim of Jesus here will knock you off your feet completely from that, from that way of thinking. You see, these people spitting on Jesus and hitting him are going berserk. They're just going nuts in this passage. Why? Well, the truth is that they may be responding to Jesus with more integrity than you and me <laughs> because they get what his claim means. They're thinking. Um, no one says this better than C.S. Lewis. Let me, let me read this to you. This is from famous book, his famous book, Mere Christianity, no one does this better than him. He says this, there's no halfway house here. This is what Lewis says. There's no halfway house here. The things Jesus said are too different from what any other teacher has ever said. Other teachers say, this is the truth about the universe. This is the way you ought to go. But Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. Now, a man who is merely a man and says that it is not that, and says um, that is not a great moral teacher or a great man. Lewis is just thinking this out. Let me read that again. A man who says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and who is just merely a man, is not a great moral teacher or a great man. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man. Who you must make your choice, Lewis says. Oh, it's just gives me chills. You must make your choice. But we should note in passing that Jesus Christ was never regarded as a mere moral teacher or a good man. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. It's so true. He produced three effects, Lewis says, hatred, terror, or adoration. But there's no evidence that anyone ever expressed approval. That's the reality here of what we're talking about. It blows the whole who is Jesus modern debate that you can get on the, from a Time magazine in the, in the grocery store. It, blows, it, it makes the argument obsolete. No one ever said, oh, that's good stuff. I'll try that. No one ever said that because he said that he was God and the judge. He said that he has power on earth. Now Christians have to make a decision. All people have to make a decision. What does it mean to be a Christian? To follow Jesus' example? No. 
When a human being says something like that, there's only three possibilities. If I was to say, stand up here and say, hey, guys, on this um, Palm Sunday, I, wanna, I have an announcement to make. I am actually the way, the truth, and the life. And you can't go to the Father except through me. You have options at this point. You can either believe me and follow me, and you'd have to give me your complete and utter um, dedication. The only, there's, the only option, if I'm telling the truth and you believe me, is to fall on your knees and say, command me, Mike, wherever you want. Or think I'm a lunatic and run. That's really it. And that's the only options that Jesus gives us. If you say anything other than those three options, it just means that you're not thinking. <laughs> you're just a lazy thinker. I don't mean that meanly. I just mean that, really, this is what we have to deal with from the text. Everything in your life should revolve around him. If he is, if he, if he is the judge, you're either headed towards him, throwing yourself down at his feet, or running from him. You can't take a neutral place with Jesus. Not with any intellectual integrity. The second thing that we learn here is that Jesus Christ is the judge, incredibly, who allows himself to be judged. This is what boggles them. If your mind wasn't already boggled about this trial, here's what this, this ought to do it. Of all the things that Jesus could have said here, and he could have said a lot of things. There's a lot of things that he could have said here. Of all the things that he could have said here, there are all sorts of images and metaphors and themes that he could have pulled out of the Hebrew Bible to, to say of who he was. So many things, but he specifically says, references to the Son of Man who is the judge of all the earth. He is the judge. He uses the image and the passage to say, I'm the judge. Why? Well, because he's at a trial. It fits. He's on, he's on trial. And therefore, Jesus, by his choice of text, is deliberately forcing a paradox here. He is the judge of all the earth who is not judging all the earth, but is being judged. That's what boggles your mind when you, when you, when you read this. If he's the judge, you, you say to yourself, why are you there then? Why are you sitting there and they're up there and you're down there? And he would say, exactly. In other words... There is an enormous reversal here in this text. A major reversal, likened to what we were talking about in chapter 12, where there's the owners and the tenant. This is the same point, just using a different picture. I'm the judge, and I'm allowing myself to be judged by people that have no business being the judge of the earth, the judge of the cosmos. And he says, this is the meaning of the whole story. That's what Jesus is saying. This courtroom scene that I'm allowing to happen is the story of mankind. This is it. This is the, this is the drama between man and God right here in the trial. If we were going to understand, we need to go, um, if we're going to understand this, we need to go to the only other place in the Bible, I think, where God is on trial, and that's Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus chapter 17, I don't know if you remember the story, Israel's in the wilderness, the people are murmuring and complaining. Remember that? He just parts the Red Sea. Israel goes through, they're rejoicing, he rescues them out of slavery to Egypt, they're rejoicing, but then they're in the wilderness and they run out of water. Remember the story? And they start to get upset and they start to complain and they start to say, oh, God brought us out of Egypt to kill us in the wilderness. And basically what they're doing is they're calling God to account. They're saying, they're saying you're not taking care of our lives right. You're not meeting our needs, God. They're basically putting God on trial. They're, they're judging him. And it's, God comes to Moses and he says, okay, have the, people, have, the, have the people assemble at this rock. Remember the story? And bring, them, and bring your rod, he says. Bring your rod. The rod, um, the rod was a very specific tool that judges used. When judges came to judge a case, they would bring a rod of authority. In other words, there's going to be a trial. The rod was the symbol of great justice, and it was as Moses' rod that God used to bring the plagues on Egypt. 
This very powerful, powerful instrument. And so you know what Moses is thinking. He's thinking, oh shoot, there's going to be, the last time I used this rod, it's like those movies, those Western movies where, the, where the, sheriff, the, the famous sheriff gets tired of all the violence and puts, puts his guns in this really nice wooden case and says, I'm done, I'm going to go gamble. I'm going to go do something that's not violent, you know? I'm going to go start a farm and just, just till my crops. And then finally some bad guys happen and they kill his family and there's that famous scene right? Where he, he goes, he's got that crazy Mel Gibson, I've snapped look in his eye, and he goes under the, the bed and he pulls out the chest and he undoes it and there's his six shooters that he hasn't used since the last time he brought down judgment on the bad guys. And, you're, and you know the movie, you're thinking, oh no, it's on. It's on at this point. That's like what this is. is. God's saying to Moses, have the people, have the people gather at the rock and get your rod. And you know, Moses, he's got to be thinking, okay, last time I used my rod, plague, you know, frogs jumped out of the Nile and, and grasshoppers showed up and ate everyone's crops and people died. So they put God on trial. They charged God. So when, when he hears this, Moses was probably thinking, this is, they're going to get punished. But then they actually go to the rock and amazingly God says... I will stand on the rock before all the people. I will stand on the rock. And now that language hasn't happened yet in the Bible. It's unprecedented. Up to that point in the Bible, there's no place where God has ever stood before the people. In fact, the language has been, have the people stand before me. Again, I'm the judge, and that's proper. And here are the people, right? I'm God, you're not. I'm the owner, you're the tenants. And yet here in this twist, God says, I will stand on the rock before the people. In other words, go ahead, take a look. Examine me. And then he says to Moses, you know what he says? Take the rod, the rod that's used for judgment, right? The rod that was used to open the Red Sea, but also close it on the Egyptians. The rod that was used to bring the plagues, the plagues of punishment on the Egyptian people. Take that rod and I want you to strike the rock where I'm standing. Do you see what's happening here? It's a reversal. It's a reversal. And Moses, in his perplexity, he's obedient, so he does so, and you remember what happened, right? The people are assembled, God's standing on the rock, Moses strikes the rock, and what happens? What is it? Water comes out, gushing out of the rock and provides salvation for these people in the, in the wilderness. They're able to drink to the full. Not just, now think, keep in mind, for a whole nation of people, we're thinking, we're talking thousands, some scholars say up to maybe a million people and their livestock. That's a lot of water. It's, we're not talking about like kink and a little, and people are like, quick, you know, doing that. It comes out enough to provide for this entire nation and all of their livestock. It's a miracle. Now, you can look at them and think, how awful of them to question God. How awful. But do you understand, Jesus is saying, the Bible throughout is saying, that is what's going on in the world, and that's what's going on with you and me. That is the state of every human being. The heart of every human being is to think that I'm a tenant, I've become the owner, I've become a judge. I'm the one that decides, I'm the one that does standards. That's what every human is doing. The Bible defines sin as putting ourselves in the place of God. I want to say that again. The Bible defines sin as putting ourselves in the place of God. Certainly, a good definition of sin comes from the Latin word that, that means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. And it's at least that. But that, it does it a disservice because it, it assumes, with that metaphor, it assumes that we're actually aiming for the bullseye. 
We're trying real hard to hit the bullseye and we just missed, we sinned. And the Bible uses metaphor to make it much more sinister than that. We're aiming for something. We're aiming to get rid of God. We're aiming for his heart. It's putting our, ourselves in that, in that place. And when you say, I call the shots in my own life. I'll make the decisions about this or that. I'm the shaper of my own destiny. I'll make my plans. I'll do all of those things. Even though you didn't create yourself and even though you, you don't know the end from the beginning, you know, you're, in, you're in very little control of your life. Nobody in this room chose to be born You didn't choose to be born in the family that you were born in. You didn't choose to be born in the place that you were born in. You didn't choose to be born at the time in history that you were born. You have very little control. And I'll tell you this, you will not get to choose when you die, for the most part, when, where, or what the circumstances are. You're largely out of control. We don't know what's going to happen with the stock market. We don't know what's going to happen with global geopolitical events. Clearly, we've seen that. We don't know if some freak disease is going to take over the world. Clearly, we've seen hints of that. We don't know a lot. We're very out of control. We like control is is, is largely an illusion. illusion. But what are we doing when when we gain that control? We're saying, I want to be the judge. You've put yourself in God's judgment seat. You've put yourself on the throne of your own life where only God deserves to be. And when we say, I don't like the way the things are going in this world. I don't like what's happening here. You can't, and you can't see the end from the beginning and yet you get so angry. Like Dora gets so angry. <laughs> That's right on cue. It's perfect. I should pay him for that. When we do get so angry and we throw tantrums, we, we put ourselves as judge. The crucifixion is nothing less than a temper tantrum that ended in the, the crucifixion of God himself. There was a play um, that was written during World War II called The Sign of Jonah, the Holocaust, when it was beginning to be unfolded exactly how deep the carnage was in, in World War II in the aftermath. Um, this play was created because they started to realize that someone needs to go on trial for this. Yeah, that's what you ask. Who's going to pay for this? Who do we blame for this type of a thing? They're walking into camps and you've seen the pictures that they've seen that they, they, of the American soldiers come and liberating these camps. Nicole and I have visited these camps and Germany and Austria and you see these pictures of the American soldiers or other allies coming in and they stumble on these camps that are out in the middle of the woods outside of a outside of a village out in the middle of the woods and they go in there and there's these emaciated starving people and piles of dead carcasses and they're not soldiers they're innocent civilians filled with people who are handicapped Jewish folks, uh, homosexuals, all sorts of minorities, specifically Jews, of course. And the world began to wake up to what was going on, and it, it just, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't hardly understand the level of evil that was happening there. Of course, you start to think, who Someone's got to, you know, it appeals to our justice. Someone's got to pay for this. And in the play, in this play called The Sign of Jonah, when they go to the common people and they say, you should be on trial for what you've done in this play. The common people say, no, 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 it's the soldiers. They're the ones. Because in reality, out of the play in history, there were these, there were entire villages and entire cities that knew these camps were going on and stayed quiet. So a lot of talk was they're culpable. Their silence makes them culpable in what happened there. And they said, well, no, it's the soldiers. The soldiers were doing it. So in the play, it goes to the soldiers. And and in the play, they say to the soldiers, you should be on trial for what just happened. And the soldiers, what do they say? We were just what? We We were just following orders. We didn't like it. 
But we were just following orders. It was, it's the, it was the people above us. It was the SS. It was, it was you know, Himmler, and it was, you know, all, you know, all of those guys. So everyone gets out of what they deserve by pointing to, the, to what the other people should be on trial for. And then at the end of the play, suddenly, at the end of this play, it's brilliant, suddenly everyone realizes we know how to get out of this. It's God's fault. It's God's fault. He could have stopped it. He created a world in which it would happen. And then he stood by and watched it happen and did nothing. And in the play, they sentence God. It's, it's super powerful. They, they sentence God. They find him guilty and they put him on trial. And here's what they say. Here's a direct quote right out of the play. They say this. Let him become a human being. Let him become a wanderer of the earth. Let him become homeless and hungry and thirsty and then let him die. And when he dies, let him be disgraced and ridiculed. So they did. They did the atrocities and they blamed God. They're demanding that God pay for their sins. But God is the perfect righteous. He is in his perfect righteousness and grace. He's done even more than that. He's done even more than our cursing arrogance has demanded. See, in in our arrogance, we demand that God come and be judged for our own sins. That's how arrogant we become. Instead of coming and, and destroying us in judgment, he has come and borne the punishment of our sin so that we can be adopted by his grace. That's the picture here. Where? Well, Moses didn't understand, but Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 of, of, of Exodus 17, Paul says Jesus was the rock in the wilderness. I'm not just making that up. There's a total theological parallel. Paul flat out says that rock was Jesus, the rock that was struck with the, with the, with the rod of judgment In Exodus 17, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that is Jesus. Mark 14 is the fulfillment of Exodus 17, rightful judge. And and we who deserve to be judged, Jesus Christ has submitted himself to us. (laughs) Do you see it? Sin, here's the rubric that the Bible gives us. And if there's anything else, if if you haven't come away with anything else, I want you to come away with this. If you want to know what the Bible is about, I'm going to give you one sentence that will give you what the Bible is about. Sin is substituting ourselves for God, right? Right? We went over that point. Point one, what is the Bible about? Sin is substituting ourselves for God. Point two, salvation then is God substituting himself for us. That is the Bible. That is the redemptive story. Sin, all sin, any sin has something to do with me substituting myself for God. Either I'm a tenant and I become an owner. I think I'm an owner. Or I become the judge. Or I'm my own king. I forget who I am. And you'd think that salvation would be God coming to punish me and set it right and get, you know, and have the last aha word. But instead, God comes and submits himself and says, I'm in love. I'm going to substitute myself for my enemies. That is Christianity. And you will not find any religion that has, or folklore, or Greek myth that has anything near what that story is. You won't find it. It's utterly unique to Christianity and utterly unique to this week. That's what we celebrate this week. You see, if there's no no divine judge, what hope is there for the world? (laughs) Right? We look at all the evil and hurt in this world and we think, geez, someone's got to put it right. But on the other hand, if there is a divine judge, what hope is there for me? Because I'm just as bad. Now, if you believe this, it's going to change you. This is how this week ought to change you. This is how Easter changes you. One, 
You cannot sit in judgment on other groups of people if you understand the implications of this. You cannot judge other groups of people. Jesus' greatness is not just that he has infinite power, but that he gave up his power and sacrificed and died to give power to his enemies. He sacrificed himself and died to give power to his enemies. If you as a Christian look at other people who believe differently than you, than you do, and you look down on them, then you're not listening to this week. It, it cancels that attitude out. Secondly, if you see that Jesus Christ was judged in your place, it means that you should forgive people who wrong you. That's where forgiveness comes from. If you see that Jesus was judged in your place, then you're, gonna, you're going to re- recapitulate that yourself in your own life. Is there, any, is there anyone in your life that's wronged you? I mean, I'm talking to human beings that live in a fallen, broken world. Of course there is. Of course there is. Is there anyone in your life that's wrong? I want you to think of them now. <laughs> Some, yeah, if we're getting elbows to spouses and all that. Think of them now. Put them in your mind now. Maybe you've been severely abused and severely wronged. We're not going to come to church and ignore that stuff. I want you to, I want you to, this is what we, this is what Holy Week is. We're facing some pretty dark things. Put that person or those people in your mind now. The people that you, that maybe the people that you've said, well, I've forgiven them, but you'd secretly love if something bad happened to them. <laughs> you know, I have those people. I've forgiven them, but if something bad happens, I go, yes. Think of the forgiveness that comes to you. Thirdly, it means you, it means you have to stop judging yourself all the time. Some of you walk around beating yourself up constantly. I'm not smart enough, I'm not handsome enough, I'm not gifted enough. What are you doing right there? What are you doing to yourself? You're what? Use the metaphor of what we're using here. You're judging yourself. You've become a judge. You're in the judgment seat looking down at yourself and you're judging every, you're, you're, you judge yourself every day. And I just say with all the love that I can say from this passage, how dare you do that? You're not the judge. You've reversed it. The only person who has the right to judge you and smack you around for what you've done is Jesus Christ, and he didn't do it. At infinite cost to himself, he got out of that chair and took your punishment on himself. Here's what it means to be a Christian, okay? In Jesus Christ, my judgment day is now in the past. It's over. It's done. Do you understand that? In Jesus Christ, your judgment day is in the past. It's over. It happened on the cross. That's what this week symbolizes. So you have the Bible's permission to squarely reject your judgments on yourself from this point forward. I'm not saying they won't stop coming. You'll get those voices, but you can say, no, no, I'm not going to believe that, and I don't have to believe that. I can ignore that because my judgment day is done. And finally, Jesus Christ does not just suffer for us, but with us. Look at he's on trial. And in this trial, he identifies with the poor and the oppressed. He identifies with the powerless and people who are victims of injustice. (laughs) He's a victim of injustice. He knows what it's like. He identifies with people who have been crushed by economic and social political powers of the world. He gets all of that. And it matters to him. Does it matter to God when a, a, a big corporation marginalizes people? Doesn't give them the pay that they're worth? Of course it does. Sure, absolutely it does. The people of the world that have gone through that kind of oppression realize that Jesus Christ is one of their own. (laughs) He's with us. He didn't just suffer, but he suffers with you. I want to, there's this great book 
by John Stott called On the Cross, or About the Cross. And he says this, he's got this great... In other words, he's saying he would be an atheist. He wouldn't believe in the... He could never believe in God at all if it wasn't for the cross. And then he says, because in a world filled with injustice, how could it be possible to worship a God who is immune to it? I couldn't believe in God because in a world filled with injustice, how could it be possible to worship a God immune to it? In Christianity, that's what, what, what made John Stott a believer, Christianity is the only faith that says that God experienced the injustice and therefore cares about it and understands it uniquely. There is no other religion like that. So if you realize this, You'll look out on the world and you'll use your power and give it for the powerless. To the poor and the oppressed, you'll do it. You'll look at, you'll look at it. This is what I tell my students all the time. Why are you here? After we explain the gospel. After I explain the gospel to my students, I say, why are you here right now? And they'll say, well, to learn. And I'll say, why? And they'll think about it and they'll say, so I can get into a good school and learn more. I'll say, okay, Why? And they'll say, so I can get a good job, and I can, and I can you know, um, take care of myself and maybe take care of someone else someday, you know, get married and be a part of that whole thing. Okay, why? I'll think about it. So I can afford a house and not be poor and suffer. But do you see the gospel that made the educational system what it is and the hospital system what it is and all of those things? You know what the gospel would say? You get power, you get skill, you get education so that you can give it away. It's the American dream that says amass it for yourself and get yourself a white picket fence and be super comfortable. It's Christianity and the gospel that says you've been given skills, you want to go back to school, you want to learn more things, great. You do all of those things, but it's for the redemptive work of this world of society. It's to put it back. It's to give, the, to, give to those who don't have. That's why you're here. Why? Because we serve a judge that allowed himself to be judged and he dumped his power into the giving and redemption of humanity rather than to, to amass it all for himself. It goes right to the heart of the Christian gospel and to Easter week. In this room, there's so much talent and intelligence, skill, wisdom, experience in this room. We have way more than just 12 the world. We have more than that here. We have so much potential here. What's, what's the key to unlock it? To realize that it's not for you. And when you realize that, you'll be able to enjoy it for what it really is. The more generous you are, the more you'll enjoy your possessions even more. You're a tenant. You're not an owner.